This is Tuned Into the Land, the California Rangeland Trust podcast. Here, we will dig into a variety of topics with the partners, conservationists, and ranchers who demonstrate every day, through their words and actions, the importance of conserving California's working lands. Tune in each month to learn more about our mission and how you can get involved in preserving the future of the Golden State for generations to come. Welcome back to this month's edition of Tuned In to the Land. I am Michael Delbar, Chief Executive Officer of the California Rangeland Trust. Transparent, informed research is at the heart of our mission of the Rangeland Trust. By communicating with our readers, our ranching partners, and our supporters, the importance of ranching and rangeland, we aspire to change the way California values working landscapes. As conservationists, we know the inherent value of private rangelands and why these lands are important to conserve, but we needed a way to demonstrate that to the policymakers and funders. In episode two of the Rangeland Trust podcast, we mentioned our ecosystem services study. So we wanted to bring in the person behind that study, Dr. Lynn Hunsinger. Dr. Hunsinger is the Russell Rusticci Chair and Professor of Rangeland Ecology and Management at Berkeley's College of Natural Resources. She has made exceptional contributions to rangeland science and management through her path-breaking research on rangeland, social ecological systems, and innovative teaching. Dr. Hunsinger was among the first to focus her research on the social and cultural aspects of rangeland management, addressing values, landowner behavior, and public policies. Her recent research advances the concept of social ecological ecosystem services in rangelands. That's a mouthful. She is revealing how working lands and their benefits are produced and maintained by the intersection of natural resources and human management. Dr. Hunsinger is so well-respected that last October, the California Rangeland Trust awarded her the Conservation Impact Award for her significant contributions to advancing rangeland conservation. So when the Rangeland Trust talks to our policymakers and and the public about the importance and the value of the work that ranchers do, we've always had a hard time putting that in in terms that are easily understood. What's the perspective of those great works? So in 2020, we commissioned Dr. Hunsinger and her team, and we partnered with them to explore the value of ecosystem services on our conserved rangelands. So with that, I'd like to welcome Dr. Hunsinger to our podcast. Thank you, Lynn, for joining us today. Thank you so much, Michael, for that great or very flattering introduction and uh, for inviting me to do this podcast today. I'm looking forward to it very much. Uh, We're glad you're here. So let's just jump in. Can you explain to us what ecosystem services are? Well, the simplest definition is environmental benefits, benefits that come from ecosystems that benefit people. And it's important to remember that last part. Um, Another definition would be goods and services produced by nature that are of benefit to people. And of course, there's so many, uh, it's almost they're uncountable, but we generally separate them into four different categories. Uh, One are provisioning ecosystem services that provide for people um, directly, like food, water, raw materials that we use. 
Another is regulating ecosystem services like nutrient cycling, um, pollination, uh, even carbon sequestration, climate regulation, all of those things that help us maintain our own habitat here on this earth, help us grow crops, all those things, all those benefits from regulating ecosystem services. Another is habitat, um, life cycle maintenance, biodiversity maintenance, um, the things that keep ecosystems functioning and keep us and other animals alive. And a thir- fourth is cultural resources. I mean, we get so much just from being in nature. Um, ranchers tell me and have told me repeatedly over the last 30 years that one of the things they enjoy most about their work is being out in nature and the beautiful landscapes that they work in. And for those of us who aren't ranchers, we get that from hiking, walking. I used to work in Sacramento and I would drive back to the bay where I live. And one of the most soothing best things uh, that I enjoyed on my way back was just looking at the woodlands and grasslands that are between here and there. So those are all kinds of ecosystem services that we get from nature. So why did you feel that that this was an important topic to research? Well, first, let me say that I've also tried to emphasize it in my research. I've also talked a lot about social ecological services, because many of those services come from the way people interact with nature. For example, um, healthy foods come from the way people uh, interact with nature. Beef, lamb, all of those things come from how humans interact with nature, and yet they're a provisioning ecosystem service. And I think sometimes we forget how important people can be in some of the ecosystem services that we produce. Uh, Native Americans, for example, the way that they used burning, uh, manipulated habitat, increased biodiversity, and ultimately prevented the kinds of wildfires that we've seen today. And the same can be said of ranchers. Uh, Many ranchers have employed and still employ, as Native Americans still burn, uh, fire in order to manage habitat and to protect us from catastrophic wildfire. So, um, in fact, stewardship to me means enhancing and maintaining the flow of ecosystem services of benefit to people. So in ecosystem services research, why do we do that? Why do we need it to put a value on things that nature produces. And especially sometimes people wonder, why does it have to be a monetary value? Because the cost and benefits of things are an important tool that we use to make decisions. And when policymakers and planners and everybody else make decisions about what they're going to do, they are often thinking about, well, what difference does it make? Uh, in the monetary outlook for me or for the public. Uh, and we all know what money is worth, at least at a given point in time. Oh, that's that's exactly when we talk about the value of the work we do as, as in the ranching community, we say it's really, really valuable. But how do you explain what really, really, really valuable is? Yeah. And it's by putting it in a monetary sense. That's right. It's a standardized value that we can use. And of course, it's inadequate. I don't know really very much how to put a value on my just enjoyment of seeing those beautiful landscapes. But with valuing ecosystem services, we can put at least a minimum value 
uh, based on the kinds of work that many people have done trying to use various kinds of research to put value on things that aren't sold or generally or non-market values on all of these things. And we can use that to communicate. It's a tool of communication to the public uh, and to policymakers and to everybody else about how much what an easement does, how much is that worth to us in the long term? And when we decide we're going to take this beautiful landscape, rangeland, and turn it into a shopping mall, what do we lose versus what do we gain? And that is the usual, you know, that's a very common way. And without these valuations, we don't have that tool to help make those decisions. So that's why we do it. And I think with uh, California Rangeland Trust easements, it's very important to have that to communicate what the what we get from our investment in easements and uh, how much that's that's worth that investment to the future, to us, to our children. I think it's really important. So how do you do it? How did you do it? Well, that's an interesting question. First of all, I want to say that I worked with Dr. Van Butzik at Berkeley, who is... Um, uh, the economist, the real economist involved in this, although, boy, have I learned a lot on this journey. I'm the range manager and the range person. So the two of us together, I think, is what it took to do this this valuation. But I do want to acknowledge his, his work. So what we did in our research, you know, since uh, 1984, about 1.4 acres of agricultural land in California have been lost and converted to other uses. So we're fairly, you know, it's pretty serious. And the Rangeland Trust has uh, more than 300,000 acres conserved in uh, their easement portfolio. So taking those easements um, and putting a value on them, uh, a non a value of all these ecosystems that come from them is a real challenge. So one of the things we did is we used geographic information systems. And by the way, our standard was we want to be credible. We want everything we base our information on to be respected data from respected sources. Because if you're if you don't have that, people don't trust your results. So we limited ourselves to available, published, credible data that had been verified many times and around the world. That also creates limits on what we can value, but it enabled us to get a pretty good estimate of what we could value with ecosystem services valuation techniques. So what we did is we used um, a geographic information system database and mapping to map the ecosystems held in these uh, easements. I think it's 56 easements. We didn't use mitigation easements because they're different from regular conservation easements, and they are usually for one value and usually fairly small. So we looked at your regular ranch-based easements conserved by the California Rangeland Trust. So at that point, it was about 306,000 acres of the 365,000 total that we have conserved. Well, it was quite an achievement to have around 300,000, and now it's even a greater achievement. So congratulations on that. Well, our easement value is already too low, <laughs> but we'll, we'll tell you what it is. So we use this geographic information system mapping system to figure out how much of each ecosystem, pretty general ecosystems, are within the California Rangeland Trust easement portfolio. And uh, that 
that meant then that we had to put values on those ecosystems. And there are two basic approaches that were available to us that met our criteria for credible, widely respected, and widely used. There's other ecosystem valuation efforts out there. And we used easements that other scholars in their field doing this valued and and trusted. So one of those is to take values that has been found by other research projects and published. And I have to say this on the ground research is so valuable. There really just isn't enough of it out there. But we took the values that we could apply to California Rangeland Trust easements and calculated the ecosystems that the Rangeland Trust had conserved, matched those up, and that's called benefits transfer, and got values. And we're looking at annual flows of values from those ecosystems. And um, then we did that, and then from this first method, total benefits or benefits transfer. The premise is, one of the underlying premises is that Ecosystem services are the values to people. So one of the things about them is that they need to represent the values to people. (laughs) And people don't experience those values unless they have exposure to the ecosystems. So in the benefits transfer methodology, you calculate the value of the services on a per household basis of households that are likely to visit the easement or drive by it like I was doing or experience it. And we chose 50 miles from each easement because that's what a person might drive in a day, you know, and uh, it would have fit my experience, I think. But obviously uh, there are people who come from long distances, people going up Highway 101 from LA to the Bay Area. They see these landscapes, but this was a, uh, a kind of estimation that is is pretty well respected. So that's why we chose it. Um, and that's one set of values. Then the other set of values we used is, believe it or not, there is an ecosystem services database for the world that has been put together over years. by So researchers from all over the world have contributed what they think the value is of a, what they have, not what they think, but what they have calculated. And of course, that includes documenting all the methods by which it was calculated, all kinds of things go into that. So anybody can look up and see how that was calculated and what it's about. And we use those values for different ecosystem services. That's highly used all over the world, but it's a little more general. Our total benefits transfer was more specific. Uh, However, if you're a scientist from Europe or somewhere else in the world, you know what that database is and you know what the values from that database mean. So we were trying to do that because that gave us a global reach in terms of what people would understand and other scholars in the field would respect um, in our work. So we did that. So really almost as the, the, the bookends of the data, then you have, you have the global value on one end and then the more localized benefit transfer value on the other end. Yeah, woodlands in California may not be the same as woodlands in Africa, you know, so those values are not as specific. The um, the international database is not as specific. We need more people to really directly calculate the value of ecosystems in California. 
So what was so what did you find out? You you did all this this research, you've taken all this data, you've compiled it. What was the what were the findings? Well, it's pretty amazing, really. Um, using the benefits transfer method, um, we found that up to $1.44 billion worth of ecosystem services are flowing from California Rangeland Trust conservation easements. That's astounding. And um, again, I want to remind you that there are things we simply couldn't value. And I'll talk more about that later. But that's an incredible value to the residents of California and to the world, frankly, uh, a wonderful thing. And that's... Is that a one-time or is that annual? That's annual flow. Annual flow. $1.44 billion a year. That's right. Wow. And um, and then we did a re- return on investment. And that was an innovative part of our study. I feel that it's the most innovative part uh, because a lot of people calculate return on investment just as that $1.44 billion flow. Um, using economics tools, they get a return per dollar invested. And if you did that, um, well, I'll explain that we did something a little differently. You know, when you make an economic decision, you want to know what you're getting for your money, right? So um, if you put money into an easement, it kind of makes a difference whether that land would ever lose its ecosystem services if you didn't put the money into it. In other words, if you didn't create this easement, would that land stay undeveloped forever? If so, you haven't gained as much as you might wish, you know, because, I mean, I think the value would still increase a lot over time because those lands are going to get scarcer and scarcer. But on the other hand, that's, that's the premise for return on investment is what return did you get? So we did um, three methods of calculating return on investment. One was just the appraiser's estimate of the the highest use of the land, highest and best use of the land at that moment in time and in the appraiser's opinion. That's pretty limited. The second was, what does the current general plan say about the future of that land? Which I think is pretty good. We consider it a medium-term estimate because general plans change over time. But it gives you a medium-term sort of time horizon that most of us can think about fairly easily. And the third is probably the most realistic in the long term, which is that all those ecosystem services have a pretty good chance of being reduced or lost without this easement. And that's the method used by most studies. Um, But we did this thing just to look at uh, what do you do? What scenario is most likely in the near term or the long term? And even using that midterm scenario, which is not the highest return that you can calculate, you get $3.47 per dollar invested. I mean, I would make that investment anytime. Absolutely. <laughs> and if you consider the long term, which is much most of these studies call return on investment, it's $268 per dollar invested. $268 per dollar invested. Wow. That's really something, you know. I thought 350 was great. I know I'm ready for the 351 myself, triple your money and more. Right. Um, but uh, it's it, these values are a lot. And, you know, 
nature is very valuable. Let's put a, let's say so, you know, it's very valuable to all of us. It supports our lives. So that's not unreasonable, I don't think either. And uh, using that, using these results, we were able to provide some general guidelines for decision-making. I mean, the Rangeland Trust has to make decisions. As I understand, you have a waiting list. Yes. Of people that want easements. 200,000 acres deep. Yeah. And so how do you decide where to invest? Well, our results are only a part of that picture, you know, and our framework's only a part of that picture because it can't consider things like the, the stewardship capability, the um, whether there's a valuable endangered species there uh, or a cultural thing, a cultural resource there that that people want to preserve or highly value. Uh, it's just a general value. And so using that, though, it, it can be part of decision-making here. And one, because if you're using that total benefits transfer, it matters how many people will see or experience the easement. So close to a population center is one good uh, thing to consider. The second, of course, is what's the risk of the development to that property? Uh, you'd want to select properties that are at higher risk to maximize return on investment. And I think you can see how that works. And then, of course, how much does it cost per acre? The lower, the better. You know, what's the necessary investment uh, per acre from from the public or the trust or donors? So those are the part of what needs to be considered or what can be considered when deciding uh, what kind of easements to choose. In a perfect world, we would have ample funding to conserve all the ranches that come to us, uh, all the landowners that want to take this step, uh, but we don't. So we have to take this data and, as you said, use it to help determine where's that biggest, re the largest return on investment. It's also an important tool when we go to seek that funding. When we talk to our policymakers, the ones that hold the purse strings about how important it is to invest in agricultural land conservation in California, and we show them the results of your study, and we say just on 306,000 acres, there's an annual return of $1.44 billion to Californians, that gets their attention. And when we look at the three dollars and forty-seven cents on for their dollar invested, the, the, the dollar that they invested in conserving those those three hundred six thousand acres, that means a lot to them too. That got us to where we were looking for uh, the monetization. So we have something we can that they can relate to. When we say this is the valuable work that we're doing, this is the value that our ran our landowners or our ranchers are doing out on the ground. They can relate to it now because it's in that monetary measure. That's right. It's a communication tool, you know, it, in its in the highest sense. And then they can use it to con communicate to their constituencies, you know, and to others, why did you make this decision? Well, here's a really important reason why. Um, so it's very valuable. And, you know, that, that value includes 95.9 million dollars in food produced, 5.6 million dollars in water. I understand that about a third of California's Water comes through rangelands so that we use uh, for drinking water, and uh, with over a hundred million dollars in biodiversity maintenance, thirty-nine million in habitat life cycle production, and eleven point five million in recreational opportunities uh, where recreation is allowed. So that's really, really something, I think. So, what does that mean to the average Californian? 
We've talked about what it means to us as decision makers in the Rangeland Trust and the impact it has on our policymakers. But what does that mean to the average Californian? Well, conserving rangelands is a really good investment. That's the primary major message for all of us, you know, wow, where can we get this kind of return anyplace else? And we need to protect our environment and ensure a greener future. And this is one way we can make sure our working landscapes are part of our conservation future and the the ecosystems that we can serve in the future. And as I mentioned from talking about social, economic, ecological ecosystem services, I think working landscapes are incredibly important. Um, also, we, we're we just losing a lot of agricultural land in California. I don't think that's very smart when we think about the future. I think most of us would agree, but it happens. And one of the ways we can argue to protect our agricultural lands is by talking about how valuable they are. I think it's important to everybody in California and um, justifies a public as well as private investment in these easements. Yeah, as you mentioned earlier, $1.4 million acres lost uh, to conversion since 1984. That's that's a lot of land. Yes. One of the challenges that California has had as of late are the massive wildfires. As we can, some of us can attest to from firsthand, it's a huge challenge not only for the loss of, of valuable lands and wildlife and their habitats, but also the impact to our food systems and our air quality on down the line. Given this history of these devastating wildfires, one of the questions we often get asked is, is wildfire fuel management included in the study? Well, I want to start by emphasizing what you just said. These wildfires affect everybody. Uh, I live in uh, the city and, you know, it was 2020 was bad for everybody, considerable uh, health danger, no matter where you live in California. We all experienced that with millions of acres burned just in 2020. Uh, And 2021 was the fires were a little further away from me, but pretty devastating, right? We we know about that. So I, I just think it's important to remember it's about all of us in this state. I think Grazing is, this is exactly what I'm talking about, about uh, social ecological services, um, which is grazing is a tremendous resource in this state for reducing wildfire hazard in many ecosystems. First, I want to say, and I should have mentioned this in terms of social ecological ecosystem services, the value of grazing and the removal of so much uh, non-native biomass from California's grasslands and woodlands and shrublands is incredibly valuable to wildlife species. Uh, 51% of our wildlife live on private lands and 59% or 51% of our listed species benefit from grazing. And that is a minimal uh, estimate based on the United States Fish and Wildlife Service's own statements and data. More than half of our listed species, which include aquatic organisms and birds, and uh, but the ones that inhabit rangelands, more than half uh, benefit from grazing. So that's very well documented. And I have to give a shout out to the various organizations that have supported that and to Sheila Berry for publishing that information recently and the many other researchers that have published information that's led to this situation. But we are ignoring fire at our peril. 
We're ignoring the role of grazing and fire hazard reduction at our peril. And we need communication here because ranchers and Native Americans and many people, many land managers understand this, but some don't. Uh, And it's underused and doesn't get talked about. And yet it's an incredibly valuable, low cost, low risk solution in many places. I'd like prescribed fire. It's not the the right thing for every place and every ecosystem. But uh, some former students of ours, uh, led by Felix Ratcliffe and Debbie Rao, calculate that almost 12 billion pounds of dry, flammable biomass is removed by grazing in California every year. And we're not grazing for fire hazard reduction right now. That's incidental to all these other benefits. And I just can't imagine the power that we would unleash if we actually did more grazing deliberately for fire hazard reduction. Because, you know, grazing is a very uh, flexible, mobile tool, (laughs) or I guess flexible is the best way to understand it. We control what the animals are, where they are, how long they're out there, how much they consume. There's no other thing like that in the animal kingdom that we can control so well uh, to manipulate ecosystems to improve, one, habitat, but two, to reduce fire hazard. And boy, we sure need to do that. A rancher, a shepherd, a goat herd, they all determine when and where these animals graze. And when people bring up, oh, what about this? What about that? Most of those are management issues. We can manage them and we can control them just like we do with prescribed and cultural burning. But despite that, it it makes total sense to us and to those who are experienced in it or those that have studied it like you. But the pushback we still get even today, even after these massive wildfires have blackened the skies for weeks on end in this state, there is still resistance to grazing on public lands whether that's state parks or federal lands, there are still organizations and folks out there that think that that is a, a wrong management approach. Yeah, uh, there's it's all gets conflated with a lot of different things, I think. But one thing is people don't understand how useful grazing can be, uh, and they don't understand how good cows are at doing it. Right. Uh, <laughs> and how much biomass a cow can remove from, from the grassland, and that that biomass, yeah, it's grass, but grass is an, an herbaceous vegetation that dries. California every year, we have such mild winters, the grass and everything else grows so much in the winter. Unfortunately, we've come to a screeching halt this year, but most years it grows so much and then it all dries up because that's our climate. And that creates a landscape, which I might call a landscape of kindling. Fires start very fast in the grassland. And gradually with the good wind and warm temperatures and dry humidity, they will carry that fire to larger and larger types of flammable material, eventually to trees, especially in unmanaged forests uh, or forests that haven't been stewarded very well. They, They find plenty of fuel to carry them up into the treetops. And we have the kinds of disasters we had this year or last year or the year before that. So uh, it's really important to control that biomass. It's mostly not native species and uh, it's valuable for forage for livestock. It's really a win-win 
situation. We need to work together to figure out how to use it properly, how to use it the best way. I mean, right now it's doing a great job without us even uh, even doing a thing. We could do so much more. And I, uh, if you talk to a firefighter, which I have done several times out there in the in the wildlands fighting fire, and you ask them, where do you look to stage to fight the fire? And they say, we look for gray spots because they're the safest for us. So there's a lesson to be learned there, and we need to communicate it. So one of the things that I found frustrating, a little frustrating in our ecosystem services valuation, is that we weren't Uh, with that first study, able to value the value of grazing for biodiversity and for fire, mostly. We couldn't, but there are ways that we can try and we can investigate that and create documented, credible values for these things. And so we're going to try. That's our next uh, study. And we've received funding from the Russell L. Rastici Rangeland and Cattle Research Endowment, which is a great resource for researchers in California. And we're collaborating with the Rangeland Trust uh, to help us do this future study and the California Rangeland Conservation Coalition. So we're looking very much forward to, to this work over the next year. So are we. We are excited about it as well. How often can you take a, an animal like cattle or sheep, goats, you move dead, dry biomass, which is a fire, has, fire hazard, and turn it into a filet mignon? That's pretty remarkable. It is. And grazing is something that can be done easily. It benefits both the rancher or the shepherd or the goat herd. It benefits both if you do it every year. It's, it's hard to do that with other methods. So it has a real advantage there. It can extend the life of a prescribed burn because I mentioned earlier that ranchers uh, like and often like and use prescribed burning and have been, it's been hard, uh, the restrictions on it lately. Uh, And that's because it, it improves forage for wildlife and livestock in many cases and both benefit from extending the reduction in inflammable fuels from prescribed burning out a long, long time. Because, you know, once you stop, things regrow, but you can bring animals in every year if that's your decision. So there's a real advantage. So Dr. Hunsinger, thank you for a great presentation and discussion this morning. It's the work that you're doing and your team is doing is so valuable. As we've been talking about valuation, uh, that work is extremely valuable to us and to all of the policymakers and the citizens of California. So thank you for, for spending some time with us today. Thank you. I really enjoyed it today. And um, I just thank, I just am thankful every day that the California Rangeland Trust and other uh, organizations have helped me and shared what they do with me. And I, sh- I really thank the ranchers of California for 30 years They've been incredibly generous in helping me understand uh, what they do and why they do it. And most of all, I think rangelands, rangelands are great. And uh, I just feel blessed to have enjoyed them for all these years and working on them. So thank you, Michael. Us too. So thank you. And we look forward to the results of your next research project. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Tuned Into the Land. Be sure to follow us wherever you listen to our podcast. We will be back next month with another episode. 